This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Our coverage now continues with the magnificent Laura Coates and the splendid Allison Camerata. Laura, Allison, how are you? I wait for the adjectives every time. And they're different. They're different every time, but they're always right on the nose. Yes, sometimes they're always true. (laughs) Somehow. I have a thesaurus, and uh, I make use of it. What what can I say? Um, Jake, we were just talking about how much we enjoyed your monologue. So Kanye West is buying Parler. What could go wrong? Yeah. Take somebody with obvious uh, stability issues and uh, a nasty view of of the Jewish people and give him a social media platform. Sounds great. Yeah. I think maybe he thinks he's like the new Elon Musk about that. And the conversation is broadly being about, hey, let's make sure that everyone has a say. The problem is, I feel like half the time, people who think that it's cancel culture don't realize that no one wants to hear the anti-Semitism. Not canceling you, it's canceling the idea that it wasn't already canceled. Didn't we already get to this point where we were not thinking about anti-Semitic viewpoints? It's bizarre to me. Yeah, what, what I thought was interesting, I didn't know this. Did you, I, I didn't know he was a billionaire. He's worth about $2 billion. No, I didn't know that either. That I learned that on your show tonight. Well, I, I mean, it it doesn't surprise me. He is, he is a genius. (laughs) I mean, he's, he is, I mean, he is brilliant and it's a, it's a travesty to, to see what's going on with him. I don't know. You know, I, maybe I'm in an unpopular position here, but I have to tell you, I've, I've seen the documentary. I know there was one called genius. I know people talk about him that way. But I have a very difficult time using that word for people who have viewpoints that I find so problematic and so unhinged. But can you separate the man from his art? In other words, like I think you're saying musical genius. And I think that's what Kanye said. Well, then say that. But yeah, Yeah. and I hear you. I know that's a distinction people make. But I often, in my my mind, I think to myself, are we going to use that word more sparingly? Unlike magnificent or fantastic, which you can use all the time to describe either one of us, for us, I just have a problem with it. I mean, the idea that you can spout and spew harsh rhetoric in that way and still get to be called a genius, just I just find that a little bit stomach-turning. Well, Fair. I mean, Henry Ford was a genius. He was also a notorious anti-Semite. I mean, Charles Lindbergh was a genius. He was also a notorious anti-Semite. I mean, and if we're going to start talking about geniuses who are racists, then we're going to mention like 99% of all the geniuses that ever lived. And then, I, you know what I'll say? Mm-hmm. Then 100% of them can't be a genius if you get that so wrong about life. That's what I say about that. And I never right, was like, the, oh, come on, Laura. Laura Coates, the genius arbiter. The arbitrage. <laughs> just saying. The genius arbitrage. I'm just maybe. Maybe. I'm, I'm, apparently, I'm never going to use the word unless it's been approved by you, and that, that's fine with me. That's or unless it's me. about yeah. us. But, Jake, we'll be, talking, us. we'll be talking uh, much more about all of this. Uh, thanks so much. Have a great night. Bye-bye, guys. Great to see you. <laughs> this whole show is about being a genius now. <laughs> okay. Maybe the entire thing. Well, then we have great panelists for it. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. And I'm Laura Coates, a pregnant the genius arbiter. And this is CNN Tonight. And we're here with our panelists from across the political spectrum. And with the midterms just, what, 22 days away now? Can you believe that? And early voting has already begun in some places. It is now debate night across America. And, well... Things are getting pretty heated. So we've pulled some of the highlights or possibly lowlights from the debates in Georgia, Ohio, and Utah. 
you were there to stand up for our, for our Constitution. But when the barbarians were at the gate, you were happy to let them in. I think I disagree with everything my opponent just said, including the words but, and, and the. Uh, it was an information-free, truth-free statement. That's uh, uh, something of a record. J.D., you keep talking about Nancy Pelosi. If you want to run against Nancy Pelosi, move back to San Francisco and run against Nancy Pelosi. You vote with her 100% of the time, so you can't run from the policies that she has supported. When Ms. Abrams was not, we were giving tax refunds. We were doing tax cuts. We were suspending the gas tax to help you deal with 40-year high inflation when she was criticizing us. We need a governor who actually believes in equity, racial equity, Thank economic you. equity in the state of Georgia, and I will deliver. Okay, we have a lot to talk about. Gloves are off in many respects, right? I mean, oh, I think they have been off yeah. between all of these people for a quite, <laughs> they on? Okay. Quite, a, quite a while. Let's bring in our CNN senior political analyst, Kirsten Powers. We also have political commentator, Jonah Goldberg, and Kara Swisher, host of On with Kara Swisher and the Pivot podcast for New York media. Great to have all of you guys here in studio with us. Okay, so um, Kirsten, who's the bigger lap dog, J.D. Vance or Tim Ryan? I felt like that <laughs> was what that debate, debate was about. That's the debate, yeah. Well, I think what, what they're ultimately trying to do is to say who is really the person that stands up for Ohio, right? And so they're trying, trying to say, uh, you know, that J.D. Vance is claiming that he, Tim Ryan, you know, stands with Nancy Pelosi, which is kind of a, actually a weird argument to make. He ran against <laughs> yeah, her. Yeah, I mean, he's not really a Nancy Pelosi right. Democrat. And that J.D. Vance has, you know, quote unquote, kissed Trump's ass, um, which basically is somewhat accurate, right? I mean, if you have to look at what he basically went from saying that Trump was this horrific terrible human being to seeking out his endorsement um, and really becoming a Trump Republican. So, but, but ultimately what I think they're both trying to say to the voters is I'm the one who's the real Ohioan who's going to stand up for Ohio. It's kind of like the new outsider discussion, right? For a long time in politics, it's always been about, look, I'm not like the people in the so-called swamp. I'm not one of them. I'm not a bureaucrat. Now it's becoming all the more politics is local. And I got to prove to you that this is where I'm from and I can relate. It's happening in Pennsylvania, discussions of who's the real person from there, in Ohio as well. They're battling in their ads between the street they lived on or the neighborhood they're in, trying to decide. I mean, is that really where we ought to be in terms of it appealing to voters? Well, I mean, I think part of what you're getting at is, is people want to seem authentic and they're willing to go to great lengths to fake it. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, but I think what you also describe is sort of one of the fundamental problems we have with our political culture generally is Everyone wants to be an outsider. You know, I mean, but I have a lot of criticism of Mitch McConnell, but at least he's willing to be like, yeah, no, I'm the insider. I, I am the establishment. I'm the guy running things. And um, we need more people in institutions who are actually willing to say, no, I'm the one responsible rather than acting like they are. Um, like Donald Trump spent four years talking about the presidency like it wasn't actually his job. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a big problem in the culture generally. Joe Biden has a problem with like that too. He often sounds like a pundit rather than the guy who's making the decisions. And all these people want to talk about being an outsider because that means they have no responsibility for what's actually going on and what's actually happened. And it's, it's a really sort of I didn't do it kind of dysfunctional way to talk about politics. Right, I hear yeah. you. Like, they right, want to yeah. be an out, a political outsider but all from Pennsylvania. Ted Cruz has been running as an outsider for a decade. Wow. Even remember that when there was all the, the riots happening, 
from Portland and beyond. You had Trump, who was currently the president of the United States at the time, mm -hmm. saying, this is Biden's America. And everyone kept thinking, well, actually, yeah, you're right, still sure. the president of the United States. <laughs> well, it's and all so for the clips, is. isn't it? It's all for the social media. It's all for the momentary back and forth. I mean, Herschel Walker pulling out that uh, pulling out the badge that he pulled out is somewhat ridiculous, but it was for the for the mm -hmm. momentary minute that you take away from it. And I think they're all attuned to that. The little, you know, that's been a part of, of debating for a long time, but now the substance is getting sucked out of it so they could have these little moments um, that resonate over and over again. How about what we're saying in Georgia? So what we just played a little clip there of, of Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams. Um, obviously, they have very different approaches, but they both, um, you know, have can say that they know Georgia. So what do you hear there? Well, I think that, you know, she's obviously an incredibly impressive person, has a huge national following, but she's running against, against somebody who's known statewide in Georgia and is considered to be a pretty reasonable Republican. And so I think it's, you know, been a tougher race for her than I think was originally anticipated. She doesn't think he's a reasonable Republican. She thinks yeah. he just didn't do treason, and that's yeah. it, and that mm -hmm. she shouldn't get... I just interviewed her yeah. this week, um, and I think she feels as if she's the, the she's more of a Georgian and has been there, and she's been in the Senate, the state Senate and everything like that, so she's not a national figure. She just became one. Yeah. Um, is she surprised the race is so close? Uh, she, she thinks she's going to win. That's, of course, what she has to say to me and other interviewers, but I think she's, she's trying to put out the... Uh, Brian Kemp, who is the incumbent, which is a plus for him, um, that he can, that he is, the only thing he did was not defy Trump on the election, and that you shouldn't get a badge for that. And that's all he did. But everything else from abortion and other issues is quite radical. Yeah, but I, I think her problem is different, though. Her problem is, is that she basically took sides with sort of a national political coalition against her own state. At least that's the way it's perceived by a lot of people in the state. She bought into the Jim Crow 2.0 stuff, which I don't think had any merit to it. You mean, you're talking about the idea that Voter to, to characterize the voting legislation as if it was Jim Crow 2.0 is problematic for the state of Georgia. I think it's problematic for the state of Georgia. It cost them an all-star game. Um, the, the, that, that sort of coalition, even though she was against the specific boycott of the all-star game. But um, you also just had a federal judge come out and say that her entire claim, that they, the Stacey Abrams could not provide a single person who was denied an opportunity to vote in 2018, and yet she still sort of clings to this idea that voter suppression, but for voter suppression in 2018, she would be governor. And I think it sounds to, to a lot of Georgians, at least the people I talked to, that, that what she's basically doing is she's sort of siding with a national media narrative against the state of Georgia, and I think that hurt her. She, in 2018 was a good year for Democrats, and she just came close. This is a bad year for Democrats. I don't think she's going to get anywhere near close. Well, what strikes me as interesting about the Georgia race, for the reasons you're talking about, is because think about this juxtaposition between what the election deniers have said about the 2020 election, an election being stolen. And then you've got a very different you know, connotation as to the reason why, but her talking about the 2018 race mm -hmm. as if it was, in a, in a way, stolen. And yet you don't have the same level of pushback, one. And Trump does not have the same presence for election deniers as other states do in terms of that. And I just wonder why there is that distinction. Why? I mean, what do you think it is about Georgia? Is it the Raffensburgers? Is it the Brian Kemp's yeah. that makes it such? They did do the right thing in that state, and, they, and especially Brian, uh, Brad Raffensperger. Um, and so one of the things that I think it's voter suppression versus voter fraud, right? That's really what's, what she's pushing, and they're pushing this voter fraud idea, uh, which Kemp did not do, and neither did Brad Raffensperger. Um, but I think she's got, she's, she, is in a unique, she has a unique problem. I think in the case, she didn't lose that much. They, just, they made the claim smaller and smaller. And her assertion is 
they changed the laws because of the pressure she put on them. And so she lost on it. She did just lose on a few counts. But it was not a good look for her. It certainly is not a good look for her. And so she's really battling a popular incumbent senator, I mean, excuse me, governor. Mm. And that's really the problem more than anything else. Um, let's talk about abortion for a second, because this came up in the Tim Ryan, J.D. Vance uh, debate. And so there's the case that we all know, the tragic case of the 10-year-old who was raped, who wasn't going to be able to get an abortion. And somehow J.D. Vance turned that, or tried to, turn that on Tim Ryan. So here's that moment. The other thing that's important to talk about, Tim Ryan talks about this poor girl who was raped, the 10-year-old girl who had to travel to Indiana to get an abortion. Obviously an incredibly tragic situation. I'm the father of a nine-month-old girl. It's unbelievable. I can't even imagine what it would be like to have that happen to your child, or God forbid, if you were a young woman, to have that happen to yourself. That little girl was raped by an illegal immigrant, and both the media and Tim Ryan need to be honest about the fact that she would never have been raped in the first place if Tim Ryan had done his job on border security. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I just I find that to be, well, we're all having the same reaction at this table. I think, Jonah, what was yours? Yeah, no, I, I think it's gross. It, it's it's very much like what Donald Trump tried to do with was it Kate Steinle in yeah, 2016? Yeah. yeah, there are. Statistically, small, lower amounts of crime by illegal immigrants than Native Americans, right? Or Native American citizens. American-born. American-born. Naturalized Americans, whatever, right? Um, But to say, but to to try to turn this into, you know, oh, these illegal immigrants are coming in and raping people, first of all, leaves out that there are, you can find examples of people being raped by full-blooded Americans. And it's it's just a gratuitous sort of wave-the-bloody-toga way of talking about things. I don't know that it persuades anybody. The base will love it, but I don't know that it persuades anybody. You think the base loves it? The base absolutely loves it. I mean, this was a Bill O'Reilly special that, that used to do, and he, and he led the chart. He's the one who started the whole Kate Steinle thing, actually. And, and, and it, it, because to some people, they'll say, well, but if that person wasn't here, it wouldn't have happened, which I get is technically true, but it's like, well, if somebody else whose grandparents were Irish hadn't been led into the country, then they wouldn't have killed that person, right? I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. It's like you could apply that to any person almost. What's, what's um, striking about Vance is I knew him before, in the before times when yeah. he was in tech. You know, yeah. he worked for Steve Case. Um, and I just, I, it's shocking. It's actually shocking. And it's what like is it? Else. What, what is, this is just raw political ambition that we're saying? Either that or a real, a real change of personality. I don't know. Is it possible he was hiding who he really was before? No, no, no. He was like a tech bro. I don't know how else to say it, but that he really Because it was. seems to come so naturally to him. You know, it, it, it makes me wonder if he was like an undercover, you know, maybe. right winger who was maybe. just hiding this. But it's because it really is, it, it, it's so extreme. I mean, to even say right winger isn't even accurate, right? I, I, I have friends who are friends with him on both sides of this question. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like the Rudy Giuliani question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have a good answer for it either. Yeah, yeah. not even slightly the same person. Really oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable to think about. And just the, I mean, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, whatever one peels to the base, if that's what you're doing, that's a problem in general. But we'll see that poor little girl. I would remind people, it's a child we're talking about, and yet again being used some kind of political pawn. Backlash tonight against the former president who criticized Jewish Americans for not being more appreciative of his moves on Israel. Let's look at why that's a problem and how it all plays out into one big anti-Semitic trope next. Former President Donald Trump is facing a lot of backlash tonight after complaining that U.S. Jews aren't appreciative 
his words, appreciative enough of his policies towards Israel. I want to bring back in um, our, to our conversation in, to the Beth Keen, the CEO of the Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles. Beth, I'm very glad you're here tonight. Thank you for joining us. You know, it's unfortunate that this topic is perpetually brought up because of the extraordinarily unfortunate and anti-Semitic remarks that are being made way too commonly. And I just wonder, in your role and what you do, it must be particularly jarring that people still are not educated on this issue enough to know how hurtful it is. Are you able to hear me? Yeah. Okay, I think you weren't able to hear my earlier question. I was asking you what your opinion was in terms of just how jarring it must be in the work that you do, particularly with the Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles, to know how often and frequently people are still posting and saying this hateful rhetoric. Holocaust Museum LA's mission is to inspire humanity through truth. And it affects me personally. My grandmother had a number burned into her arm that um, 79335 has been etched in my memory just because my grandmother, my grandmother's life wasn't deemed um, to be worth, she, to be hum, a human being. She wasn't worthy of, of being a human being. She watched her own parents and her siblings walk into the gas chambers. And so it's really important for us to remember that words have responsibility. Um, the Holocaust started with words. Um, when we see people like Kanye West post uh, words filled with hate and lies and, and anti-Semitism, he needs to understand where that racism and prejudice can lead. So that's, that's what we do at Holocaust Museum LA. We need to, we educate kids and people of all ages about the lessons and the social relevancy of the Holocaust. It's so important, and I, I know you've mentioned at least one person who is an artist, but this also came in part from a former president of the United States who was making statements somehow to perpetuate a trope that somehow Jewish Americans have a loyalty towards Israel as opposed to the United States of America, that somehow on the basis of the religion, they are supposed to feel appreciative to the point of exercising their vote only in one direction. There are consequences, and I wonder, when these statements are said by someone like a president of the United States, what does that mean, do you think, for how people, not just only down in politics, but across the globe, think about this? Is it making it okay? I think it's, it's another form of anti-Semitism. This is just, um, you know, Donald Trump is perpetuating a false narrative. And we know there are Jews, many different kinds of Jewish people who share many different kinds of beliefs. And he's just perpetuating another false narrative. When you think about the consequences, I mean, there is a rise of hate and actions can result from that as well. What do you hope people will most understand about the consequences and how to course correct this type of rhetoric? We know that education is the greatest catalyst for change. And uh, it's really important for people to understand the Holocaust did not happen overnight. It didn't just fall from the sky. And it's a series of events that happened over time. and hate speech, the lies, anti-Semitism, 
these are things that are roaring into our public discourse today. Mm. And it almost, it feels very mainstream. And like I said earlier, the Holocaust started with words. And we know when, what can happen when hatred and bigotry go unchecked. So we all have a social responsibility to educate people about what can happen because it keeps happening again and again. Beth, thank you so much. Thank you for helping the fight for education in this area in particular. Thank you. Allison, I mean, just the idea of it becoming so mainstream that it almost, I mean, it's just, can you imagine? The 2021 um, had the highest anti-Semitic incidence. Uh, It was a Mm. new high. Now, is she inviting Kanye West to the Holocaust Museum in L.A.? There have been people who she's done it over time. Remember, there was a big visit here in Washington, D.C. with Marjorie Taylor Greene at one point, the yeah. congresswoman from Georgia. So is that on the there, table I, I think that's still on the table, but I, I have to wonder. I mean, the idea of doing it individually to educate what ought to be done more collectively is just really troubling to me that piece by piece, I mean, after all this time, people yeah. are still learning this. I think it can't hurt. I think it can't hurt for him to go and have to see it and have to live it and have to feel it on some level. He has 30 million followers. So it's, it, yes, it's one by one educating people, but he does have an impact, like it or not. He does have an effect. And so I think that it would help. I hope that he takes uh, up her invitation. All right. We want to hear what you have to say about all of this, and we'll be right back with our panelists. A source tells CNN that Kanye West and Donald Trump spoke by phone today about West acquiring the conservative social media site Parler. Just last week, West, who legally changed his name to Yee, was locked out of Twitter for an anti-Semitic post. Let's bring back in Kirsten Powers, Jonah Goldberg and Kara Swisher. OK, Kara, I want to start with you because um, the uh, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, is quite concerned mm-hmm. about this. So what yeah. he says is it's key for people to understand that Yee did not just purchase some benign alternative social media website where conservative views are debated and discussed and free speech rules the day. Parler is a safe haven for extremists anti-Semites and white supremacists. What do you predict will happen when Kanye buys, now that Kanye has bought the parlor? He hasn't bought it. He's bought it in principle. I don't think it's ever going to close. Why? Um, it's just not. It's just, I, it doesn't make any sense at all from a business point of view. He's had a lot of troubles in business with a lot of partners. Um, it's a marketing opportunity for Parler, uh, for sure. They've been trying to dabble in all kinds of businesses. All these sort of right-leaning sites have tried, whether it's Getter or, or some others, and it's been tough. And Twitter, the big, the big giant among them, is a terrible business. So it's not a great business. Um, I think, I don't know if he'll realize that. Um, and I, I don't see any economic opportunity for anybody, and he's got to recognize it. But how is this different? So tell us how his purchase in, in principle is mm-hmm. different from, say, an Elon Musk discussion about Twitter. That's been a back-and-forth conversation. How, is, how would this be different? Well, it's not. He didn't make a con- binding contract. It sounds like he didn't. There's no. There's almost no details about this, and there's a lot of details about what what Elon promised to do at Twitter, which is buy it for fifty four dollars and twenty cents a share, and that's what he's going to have to do because he signed a, a binding contract. This is one that it's in principle, so I don't quite know what it means. It sounds like it was struck at the last minute from reporting in the Wall Street Journal. Um, it's you know again, Parler's been struggling. It just got a small investment, which was very small. Um, it's been trying to do things around platforms. It had, was in NFTs, and now that market has crashed. 
it was selling Trump NFTs at one point. Um, you know, Jonah thinks that's funny. <laughs> well, I bought you one. Then that's comedy for you, Jonah. Yeah, I bought you one. How sad. But I mean, even if he doesn't officially buy it, they, they, the language they've been using is acquire. And so, do you think that he has free reign to say whatever he wants on Parlor now? I think he has free reign to say anything he wants anywhere he goes. I don't know if he needs Parlor to do so. You know, he's he's been. What he said on the other services, he got kicked off of, he totally deserved it. He broke their terms of service. Um, Parler, he may or may not be able to say. They have lots of moderation on Parler. Um, they just don't, don't tout it. They say they're the free speech network of the free speech or whatever, they, whatever motto they have. Um, there is a lot of really terrible stuff on that platform. They have improved since, since January 6th. That's what do you guys think about the idea? I mean, there's often a conversation surrounding... The idea you got to be able to say anything you want. That's the whole enticement of these um, different social media platforms. You know, consequences be damned. I have this free speech rights as if anyone you just named is the government, which, of course, is who has the First Amendment obligations. But assuming you think about it in a very loose way, sh- should there be more policing of the content? Why are you saying the word policing? Some? It's called editing. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Editing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm using the word policing because that's the terminology people use to describe what they but feel is being company. done for them. It's not the government. Well, I'm using the... That's, it is true. It's not, the, it's not the government. But the but, idea of ensuring that you are following certain laws and regulations of terms of use is essentially the sure. definition of the use of the word policing. Should it Look, be... Look, I think that... I do think there's an idea of a free, free speech that's outside of the government. You know, that we would want to foment, you know, free speech, have differing ideas in the public square mm-hmm. where we battle out these ideas. What I always love is this when people say... I got banned because I'm conservative. And it's like, oh, were you arguing for low taxes or a big military? It's like, no, I was blaming the Jews for all the problems in the world. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was a conservative position, right? So so we do have some standards and some guardrails in society. And that doesn't mean that your free speech is being taken away from you. You can still say the things. You're not going to go to jail. I mean, do you know how hard it is to get kicked off of Twitter? I, I could show you what is said to me on a daily basis. Mm. I shudder to think. Misogynist I garbage think. that I have reported and always get something back saying this does not violate our terms of That's service. That's amazing. Right. So, so the idea that somehow people are being silenced from expressing political views is nonsense. They're being, they're being, they're being sometimes punished, occasionally right, but there's punished also, for, for saying things that, for threatening people, for saying things yeah. that are dangerous. That's the point. I agree entirely with, with, with Cara and, and Kirsten in that, in that, look, I mean, I've had these arguments with free speech absolutists for a million years and say I'm completely against censorship. And I was like, okay, so can Saturday morning television have pedophilia and pornography? Oh, no, 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 no. That's just yeah. community standards. That's just response. No, that's editing. That's, that's, um, responsible stewardship of a of a platform, and there's a Gresham's law. You know, part of this is a business proposition, and I think Kara makes a very good point. Everyone likes this. Everyone on the right likes to talk about how Twitter is big tech. Mm-hmm. Twitter is actually pretty medium sized to small tech. I call it you know, yeah, it is nothing near the capitalization of like you know, say Google or anything like that, right? And these other things are just microscopic and. Um, but we we treat them as if they're a much bigger thing because everybody in the political conversation is very, very, very online. Most Americans aren't. And the only thing that really um, you know bothers me about about the attention on the artist formerly known as Kanye is that um, I actually just I, I don't want to hear the guy. I mean, I think he's got mental health known mental health issues. He's been exploited by a bunch of people. What drives me crazy is the number of people who are amplifying and monetizing and cashing in on 
his mental health problems. And, and what they'll do is they'll say, oh, look, here's what he said about like, what big corporations are doing, and they're trying to silence him for this. And I was like, no, no, it was actually the stuff about the Jews that they're saying he's, he ran afoul on. He can talk about big tech, and he can talk about you know, capitalism all he likes, and it's this bait and switch, and you see it from a lot of right-wing sites um, who are trying to say that this guy's being canceled for things other than the anti-Semitism, which is a de facto erasure of the anti-Semitism. It's also a business. Let's just be honest. Advertisers don't want to be near this stuff. They don't, they don't want to be in a cesspool. And so they can make these sites. It just won't be good businesses, and then they won't be. So, and so you don't see a bright future for Parler? I do not. I don't see it for... I've told this to George Farmer, who's the CEO. Very smart guy. I just... It's very difficult to make a business. He's tried a lot of things. And I had interviewed the previous CEO, which got him fired. The interview actually got him fired, but because he just sort of abrogated any responsibility on that platform after January 6th. But it's got to be a good business, ultimately. And it's just mm-hmm. not. And Twitter has not made a sense since it was founded. Right. It's been a terrible stock. Elon Musk is about to buy a company for $44 billion that's worth seven. That's like to, I would like to take the money and shovel it into an oven. It's the same thing, you know. Oh, wow. It's really bad. Yeah. <gasps> You're saying, but it's not less. I want to go to the oven. I'll be the receiving end of it. But anyway, <laughs> and we want you to know what all you are thinking right now as well about the alarming rise of anti-Semitism. Who is to blame? What can be done about it? And your views on other things we've been talking about today during the show. Tweet Allison and myself at Allison Camerata and the Lara Coates. All right, Saturday Night Live doing what it does best this past weekend, tackling all things, well, political. In its cold open, the show focused on last week's January 6th committee hearing, particularly the role that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer played on that very day. Donald was desperate to hang on to power. Meanwhile, real heroes like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were the ones actually running this country. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Vice President, Speaker Pelosi again. Tell him I'm here, too. (laughs) Mr. Vice President, where is President Trump? Why is he doing this? Stop this. And hi, Mike. It's Chuck Schumer. I'm here as well. Let me tell you, if Trump comes here right now, I'm going to punch him right in the face. I'll go to jail, but I'll be happy. And let me tell you, if Trump comes, I'm going to let him punch me in the face. I'll go to the hospital. Free soup. (laughs) <laughs> I want to bring in Pete Dominic, comedian and host of the Stand Up with Pete Dominic Daily Podcast. Jonah Goldberg and Kara Swisher are also back. First of all, a comedian laughed at another comedian. That's almost unheard of. That no, it's not. Oh, no, it's funny. not, ladies. First of all, thank you for dressing as Candy Hearts. It's so great to be on your set with this talented group. I don't even know why I'm here. We support each other. Comedians support each other. We root for each other, and that was hilarious. That was, uh, that was, was good. Uh, I am so patriotic when I watch Saturday Night Live every Saturday because... What a great country we live in. It, for 45 years, they have made fun of the most powerful people in the world, and they can do it again the next Saturday night. And, I mean, obviously, you do this also. Every, Stephen Colbert and The Daily Show and all the places that you've worked, it's a great country. Nobody has been stopped from making fun of the most powerful people. Thank God. Yeah, no, I mean, comedians have been doing it forever. I think we get a little bit too much credit. Oh, you're supposed to seek, speak truth to power. You can, and if you do, great, but you don't have to. But I think, yeah, I worked at The Daily 
Daily Show and then the Colbert Report. Now I'm at John Oliver Tonight. And of course, I've been doing stand-up my whole career. But I think, you know, Kara can obviously speak to this too. All of us can. You guys are hilarious on Twitter yourselves if you want to be. There's so many other places to be funny and to say things and to go viral. And you don't have to have the backing of a huge network and a huge media platform. And I've seen so many, quote, no-name comedians get massive as a result. But don't you think that, do you think that SNL still has cultural relevance? It ha- sure, till Monday. I mean, it airs on Saturday night. We love it. We watch it. They still have great writers. They still have great performers. But it's, it's a network show. On 1130 on Saturday night, it's still great. But there's so many other things available. And there's so many other comedians. And just because you're on SNL doesn't mean you're the best. Just because you're on Anywhere doesn't mean you're the best. There's so many great independent comedians doing great things. You see that woman that got a beer thrown at her on stage, this comedian. And she's gotten super famous overnight because of that terrible thing and how she handled it. But you come to find out she's also a very funny comedian. Well, you know, the thing that I think is so fascinating is just as around this time, Mm -hmm. the voters start to lean into the midterms even more than they have been before. And then you've got SNL, who begins the spoofs. And I think about the Tina Fey's. I think about the Alec Baldwin's. I think about the impersonations and how it can really shape the way that people start to view the candidates. Sure. It makes either a mockery of them. People kind of lean in and go, oh, I guess maybe they are a joke. Or they go, hey, I like this person even more, depending on how the foil is. And I just, I think about the way that satire more and more is yes, shaping but it, it. it. The last time it mattered was Tina Fey doing Sarah Palin. It really changed the people. I'll throw you, I'll throw you Kate okay. McKinnon, Rudy Giuliani. That cross-gender stuff, I think, has been sort really of, great yeah. to see, like women making fun of men by playing men. I mean, making a real difference is what I'm saying. I think when people saw that Tina Fey skit uh, with Amy Poehler, I think it was the first Yeah, we have it. Let's, 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 play, it. Uh, let's okay. play a moment. Right. I believe that diplomacy should be the cornerstone of any foreign policy. And I can see Russia from my house. <laughs> you think that that actually did change some voters' minds? Oh, I think it did. I think it was very powerful. And I think, but now it isn't, as he's saying. There's other places. And the problem is, if you look at the numbers, uh, viewership is down on all of television and cable, too. You all know this. And so, and people are getting things from TikTok or wherever in little pieces and and different places. And so you can't decide where uh, people are going to become famous anymore. And so that's a real... I, I, I know I'm the skunk of the garden party on this kind of stuff, but first of all, SNL's had good years and really bad years. I think it was terrible on politics for all eight years of Obama. Their head political writer said, basically, he, you can't make a joke about the guy. He's too perfect. <laughs> and, um, and a lot of people on my side of the aisle saw this as a perfect example of how the culture goes one way. A lot of political comedy is a monoculture. A lot of the network comedy shows all come from the same perspective. They may, they, some may land jokes better than others and but all some that. Things are, some things are objectively funny. Yeah, that's, I, I will, yeah. That, that's where I get to argue with Jonah because it's sure. the only thing I might know more about than Jonah does. And because <laughs> I've been doing comedy so long. It is true. It is true that Obama was really hard to make fun of. It, it, it's true. And if a conservative comedian could have excelled at making fun of Obama, they would have and they should have, but they didn't. It was a free market, as we've been talking about. He was hard to make fun of. He didn't have a tick. He wasn't uh, a constantly a parody of himself, whereas now today, comedians so often saying, you know, since the Trump era and media has changed so much, they're a parody of themselves. Yeah, look, I I, mean, I, 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 I'll grant you. Easy, easy thing for you to grant. Donald Trump is easier to make fun of than Barack Obama. But one of the reasons why Donald Trump is easier to make fun of than Barack Obama, among myriad other reasons, yeah. is that there's a lot of audience capture in late night television and in, in, in sort of lead comedy. I mean, The Daily Show 
John Stewart was brilliant. I don't dispute that for a heartbeat, and he was really, really good at it. He also basically did fan... He was telling the audiences what they wanted to hear about the politicians the way they wanted to hear it, and there was a certain, there's a certain amount of sort of preaching to the choir that you get. Some are really good at it. doesn't mean everyone, they're not funny, but there is a, there's a definite sort of a sense from but a lot of people on the, the right. Answer, like there's, there's well, the how, evidence. How, do you, how do you explain the idea that people like, I mean, who, there were people who, and I think they did go too far, but you had the likes of Jim Carrey and others who were saying, look, we're being criticized for our comedy because you're saying we're going too far when we are criticizing people like Trump, for example. But I mean, comedians yeah. also are making fun of Joe Biden. I was just yeah, going to say that. Yeah, no, no, that no, that's what was the point about sure. the, the Obama, you know, arrow. He wasn't touched. The, the, the reason why I think that's wrong is because look at what comedians are doing to Joe Biden all day, all the time. He's very easy yeah. to make fun of. I'm not the professional comedian or professional joke writer, but if we're going to talk, as Allison was talking about, how brave and wonderful and great this country is because our comedians get to make fun of the, most people, the people in power, going eight years without make, finding anything that you can make fun of Barack Obama about... We- you must you not, you, I'm interviewing Larry Wilmore tomorrow on my show, and he made fun of Barack Obama at the White House Correspondents' Center. Everybody made fun of Barack Obama at the White House Correspondents' Center. Well, I remember you before right. you so couldn't. We, we've established that Obama it, is not funny, but I would agree with that. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I think the issue is can't, what, how, do you, how do people get their humor, how do especially young people get their humor yeah. now? And it, they absolutely do not get it from these big shows right. anymore. They just, maybe a moment and something pops out, and you're like, oh, that's funny. Uh, there's all, I could, well, John Oliver, I think, yes, John we have Oliver. a really young audience He's the one there. person, I have to say. Yeah. I have two teen sons. They there you are, go. They love him. They, yeah. My son just went to the set, actually. And yeah. Saw yeah. Uh, but, but it's few, and it was sort of like John Stewart, the people thought about John Stewart many years ago when he had his show. Yep. So I think the difficulty is like, where do these comics come from, and how, what is the longevity of their careers? And that's what's more difficult, and where well, they get I, I will, I'll be yeah, very controversial quickly. and say con- conservatives are much easier to make fun of than liberals, John. Particularly if you're a liberal comedian. No, because <laughs> if, if it were true, conservatives would have a field day making a lot of money making fun of us. And, you know, some, of, some are doing a pretty good job. I'm not saying it's impossible, yeah, but I, it's a free market comedy. It's a new Go area for, for you, Jonah. There you go, Jonah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All I'm saying is, if you, if you look from ABC to CBS to NBC, including John Oliver, including The Daily Show, um, it is overwhelmingly from the sort of the same direction, um, the same assumptions, often the same cheap shots, sometimes not. And uh, there's a market out there for, for half the country. And look, I got huge problems with my old friend Greg Gutfeld these days. But Greg Gutfeld is the number one comedy show out there for a well, there reason. There you have it. There you have it. He is yeah. funny. All right. Thank you all very much. On that note, we need to talk about George Clooney. Oh. Um, oh. He's, yes. He's getting personal about politics. Next, what he shares with CNN's Chris Wallace about the Donald Trump he knew back before Trump ever ran for president and his fears now. There, there's this part of you that just goes, well, that guy shouldn't be president. But I was wrong. And he was. And, uh, and our uh, democracy... Uh, I believe paid a price, certainly around the world. George Clooney sitting down with Chris Wallace for a wide-ranging interview last night. And Clooney offered up a story about the Donald Trump he used to know. There is a world where we could go back to where we were. I don't think it's as likely as people think. But I was wrong about the first election. You know, I didn't think people would... I didn't think people would vote for someone who was so deeply flawed. You know, I mean, I know Donald Trump. You know, I mean, that's the thing is people, you know, I have his phone number in my phone book. He was he was the guy that came to the bars and and 
asked me about which which cocktail waitress was single. You know, that's who he was. This is back in the 90s. Not that long. No, back in the 2000s, quite honestly. And uh, and so there, there's this part of you that just goes, well, that guy shouldn't be president. But I was wrong. And he was. And uh, and our uh, democracy, uh, I believe, paid a price, certainly around the world. And uh, and I worry about the uh, the possibility. Mm. You forget sometimes just how much he was a part of the social scene, Donald Trump. <laughs> so like, yes, Absolutely. Laura. <laughs> and a lot of people knew him as just how George Clooney is describing yeah. that Donald Trump, the sort of real estate mogul bon vivant of yesteryear. And people thought that that was harmless mm-hmm. and sort of all fun and games. And as George Clooney says, then something shifted and he was wrong about his impression. But he also mm. goes on to say in this interview, and I think that it just echoes what so many of us feel. He said the new joke, the new cruelty is, you know, let's send migrants, people seeking legal asylum here. Let's send them without any warning because it's fun to own the liberals. Like mm-hmm. it's all about basically he's saying the that the, the, it's a game and the civil discourse is so rancid right now. And it's all about like, who can you hurt? And the cruelty. And I think so many people feel that way, but yet nobody's able to stop it for some reason. Well, that's the scary part. I mean, the idea that for the reason you talk about, if everyone is a pawn, then there, I mean, remember we had the veterans at one point and Congress had that very issue, same thing. I mean, I just, that is, so, that's why people are so disgusted, by the way, with politics. Listen, we're getting some of your reaction here tonight on Twitter. Here's one that came in about Kanye West. It says, Kanye West definitely needs to go to the Holocaust Museum and get re-educated on the Holocaust the same way we require those who try to downplay slavery, Jim Crow, and segregation. We also want to hear more about your thoughts tonight and have you join the conversation. What did you think about what George Clooney had to say about the former president and other topics today? Can we go back to where we were? Let us know. Tweet us at the Laura Coates and at Allison Camerata. We're now just 22 days out from the midterms, and it's far from clear, frankly, which side's going to hold Congress next year. Debates in close races tonight as candidates try to push themselves over the top. And former President Barack Obama giving his party a bit of unvarnished advice on what to stop doing. The life I'm leading day to day, how, how, how does politics even, how is it even relevant to... Uh, you know, the things that I, I care most deeply about, my family, my kids, you know, work that gives me satisfaction, uh, you know, having fun, you know, not, you know, not, not being a buzzkill, right? Uh, <laughs> that's you know, a, that's so, a lesson for the Democratic yeah, yeah, and, and sometimes Democrats are, right? Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, sometimes people just want to not feel as if uh, they are walking on eggshells. Uh, and 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 they want some acknowledgement that life is messy, and that all of us, at any given moment, uh, can you know uh, say things the wrong way, you know, make mistakes. Mm. Joining us now to discuss CNN political commentator Jonah Goldberg, former Obama White House official Will Jawando, and CNN political analyst Jonathan Martin. I'm glad to see you all here. I mean, what did you make of that comment? The idea of it almost is a, a newer way of talking about PC and political correctness. Yeah. The idea of not wanting to feel so uncomfortable 
about what is expected of you in this, in this America. Professor Obama, office hours uh, are, are, are open. <laughs> he, he does have a tendency to uh, sort of, uh, I think, lecture the party at, at times, frankly, when it's needed. And I think he's never been shy about doing that. I think now he's out of office. He's particularly willing to do it and to say things that, frankly, other people in the party would never say. Right. Which is we can come off as scold sometimes as, as Democrats and people really don't like that. It's part of a kind oh, of stop it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's part of a kind of a, this cultural rejection of the party that isn't related to policy issues. And I think he's trying to sort of tell Democrats that, that, look, you still as a Democrat, a lot of parts of this country have to run a defensive style of politics. And by that, I mean, you have to be constantly aware of proving to the voters that you're not what they think your party is. Yeah. And so, Will, is that how you interpret it? He was saying basically the Democrats are too woke. Is that what he was saying? Well, you know, I, I think it's do you want to be exactly right? Do you want to cross every T and dot every I and yeah. get every detail right? Or do you want to win and relate to people? Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes we make the perfect the enemy of the good and, and you're trying to actually connect with a person. They're messy. They have problems. They're just worried about the day to day. And I think sometimes, even though we get the policies right as Democrats, you know, we're giving people hearing aids, we're forgiving student loans, we're doing things that help people's daily lives. They feel a little disconnected from the perfection side of the party, uh, what you're calling wokeness. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that's a loaded term. But well, I he do was saying think- buzzkill. I mean, I'm 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 just trying to interpret. Isn't that a code for, like, don't be a scold? Like you said, scold, woke, buzzkill. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, we want to have, it's okay to mess up. You know, you want to have fun. You you don't have to be perfect. You know, I think you you take that to the extreme with some of these crazy candidates that are super flawed and not smart in case of Herschel Walker and others. But I think that appeal, sometimes Democrats forget that. We're just people, and I think it's a problem. Well, there's that one part, though. I want to go on. I mean, I want to hear your comment, but the end of that clip, he actually uses his own mother-in-law as an example, yeah. and yeah. he talks yeah. about how I think she's. I don't want to the give phraseology. her the phraseology, but yeah. the, the idea of look, it's right. Michelle Obama would say that it's kind of like teaching her mother Spanish. Doesn't mean she doesn't need to learn Spanish, right. but she's going to get some things wrong in the in the way that she's living right. and the way she's thinking about things. But to have a little bit of political grace, and I wonder if actually, can we just play? Let's just play it. Sure. Why am I quoting? Let's just hear him. <laughs> Michelle talks uh, about her mother-in-law, or her mother, my mother-in-law, who is an extraordinary woman. But as Michelle points out, she's 86, you know, and sometimes, you know, trying to get the right phraseology when we're talking about issues, Michelle's like, that's like her trying to learn Spanish. (laughs) It doesn't mean she shouldn't try to learn Spanish, but it means that sometimes she's not going to get the words right. Uh, And that's okay, right? And, and, And that attitude, I think, uh, of just being a little more real and a little more grounded is, is something that I think makes it, goes a long way in, in counteracting what is a systematic, um, this, the, the systematic propaganda that I think is being pumped out by Fox News and all these other outlets all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of different things going on. I think there's a lot of, in, in both parties, there's a lot of catastrophizing, which is the buzzkill part. Oh, existential threat this, existential threat to democracy, existential threat to the planet, yada, 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 which I think grinds people down a little bit and as them tuning out. But I also think that there's essentially a very online vernacular that uh, has taken hold in parts of elite media and certainly in academia. And, you know, President Obama talks about teaching someone Spanish. A great example of this is Latinx, or Latin, you know, which 
is a way to degenderize the Spanish language. Very popular. You hear a lot of people in the, in the 2020 Democratic primaries using this phrase. Mm -hmm. And no one bothered to actually ask a lot of people in the Hispanic community whether they use the term or like the term until well after. And it turns out that only about 2 or 3% of Latinos in this country either are familiar with it at all or ever use it. And, um, they, and a lot of them find it condescending. And there's this way where I think a lot of elite Democrats and liberals think they are actually being very inclusive because they talk to other elite people and academics who say this is the inclusive language that you need to use and talk about you know, birthing persons, persons instead of mother. And for a lot of normal Americans who might be with them on a lot of normal issues are just sort of like, I don't even know what language you're speaking. Yeah, Why are you laughing? Well, I think you have to be able to speak to follow President Obama multiple languages, even if it's not an actual language. You have to be, part of being an inclusive person is accepting, you said it great, Laura, having some grace, right? Like you can try to be inclusive, you can take all the new data and things move, language changes, but also understand that not everyone's moving with you. We're a big, diverse country. Things happen at different yeah. pace. And, and just accepting that and not judging someone either you know, overtly or covertly because they're not where you are. And I think that's a, that is an issue. But who is President Obama talking to there? Because it's not Joe Biden. It's not that Joe Biden's no. accused of ever having no. to use exactly no. the right words. No, no, no. I mean, no. so he was, he's, he's, he's... He's talking to the strategist and the candidates in the Democratic Party who he knows are feeling cross pressures from the elite sort of academic and, uh, and the online crowd, as, as Jonah put it, but also have to be mindful of the broader electorate. And what Obama is saying to those Democratic actors, the candidates and the strategists, is, look... A lot of Americans feel like they have to walk on eggshells these days. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They're well-intentioned. They're good-hearted people. But let's show them some grace, as you said, and let's not judge them. And let's be a little bit more careful because as Democrats, we're going to pay a price if we're seen as being too darn preachy and too judgmental about people because they don't have the right precise phrase you know, in 2022. You know, I don't agree. I, maybe he's talking to them, um, but I think he's really talking to Republicans and he's talking to independent voters, mm -hmm. and he's saying to them, listen, I know that President Biden is the head of the Democratic Party. Well, let's be honest, I'm still Barack. <laughs> and so people are going to look at me yeah. and think synonymous with the Democratic Party, and I'm right. telling you, I'm, give, I'm letting you know, yeah. this is not a trying to attack you. Right. This is the idea we can all sort of coexist. And I think he was trying in many ways. He knows the midterms are 27 days away. Right. I think he's trying to appeal to the notion that there are some Democrats. I mean, James Carville at one point yes. made comments about the idea of being so woke as to remove Abraham Lincoln's name from um, different schools and talking about how DeSantis has capitalized on these very yes. notions to try to use these talking points. I think he's talking to Republicans. I think he's talking to voters to say, hold on, just so you know, we are on the same page. Right. Don't think that the quote-unquote extremes govern the party. Yeah, Jonah, yeah. your thoughts on that? I don't. What was the podcast that he was on? Pod Saves America. Yeah, yeah so he wasn't talking directly to Republicans. <laughs> um, well, yeah, he is right maybe now. Was, I walked right into the game. <laughs> maybe it was a Karen shot. You know, shot. You know <laughs> show. Um, off the back. Yeah, but uh, but they knew they're gonna play it. They know. They know. <laughs> I get it. I, I, he, he knew it was gonna be Eric. He knows it's gonna yeah, be. No, no. And I, I'm sure that's part. I, or I'm not sure it's part of it, but it's entirely possible it's part of it. I think what he's just generally trying to do is do is say something as 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 jmart was saying is that he's one of the only guys who can actually say this stuff and get away with it like he gets permission to sort of scold his own side and also appeal across the aisle 
by saying, hey, look, we may get the, the terms and the shibboleths wrong, but that doesn't mean mm. we're, not, we're not right where the American people the are. Way, he's you know. done this before, too. I mean, I, going back for at least the last four or five years, he's repeatedly raised this issue about his own party, and, and he's constantly brought it because he knows a lot of the times Democrats don't win elections. It's not because of the policy debate. It's because they're seen as culturally out of step with the broad swath of American voters. It's also his ethos. You know, I am my sister's keeper. I am my brother's keeper. We're not a red America. Blue. I mean, it goes yes. back to the yes. core of who he is, sure. too. But I do agree, to Laura's point, he was talking to a wider audience there. And is anybody going to pivot and change? Like, when somebody hears that from Barack Obama, does that change what some candidate is well, doing? Well, I think we're, you know, I hope so. I mean, look, I'm, I'm an elected official. I try to talk to everybody. I, I think some people will hear that. There's going to be parts of the party that have these purity tests. Um, and I, I, maybe to them, they'll, they'll think twice about it. I think you'll see Democrats, especially those who are facing some tough poll numbers in the final weeks of the election, start airing some ads that... Uh, reflect the spirit of yeah. what the former president there is saying, to, to say the least. So. Okay, guys, thank you very much. Great conversation. Jonah, thank you. Will and Jonathan, stick around. We have a lot more to talk about. So tell us what you think. You can tweet us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates, and we'll read some of your thoughts later this hour. So tonight we're learning more about the deadly attack that killed two Connecticut police officers. The Bristol Police Department now releasing some of the body cam footage of the shooting. Authorities say the suspect fired more than 80 rounds, killing Sergeant Destin DeMont and Officer Alex Hamsey before being killed by wounded officer Alec Iorado. The footage we're about to play is from Iorado's body cam, and I have to warn you, The audio in this clip alone is disturbing. You're going to hear screaming, and you're going to hear gunfire. Shots fired, shots fired. More cars, send everyone. Officer shot, officer shot. Ricky's off shot. Ah!
One down. Suspect down. Let's bring in Republican strategist Rena Shah. We also have Will Juando and Jonathan Martin there with us. That was a lot more awful than I expected. Uh, that was awful yeah. to listen to. That was so horrible. He, that was a police officer who survived uh, and was wounded. Just to give the context, too, I mean, they were apparently lured under false pretenses of a domestic violence call. Officers did what they were supposed to do mm. to respond to the scene to help, and, and it was an ambush, yeah. oh. firing over 80 rounds just just awful. to kill the officers. And, and I mean, so that's that's Bristol, Connecticut. That's an awful, awful story. And then at least 54 police officers have been killed by gunfire this year so far. So it's a very trying time. We know that for law enforcement, of course, it's a trying time in terms of crime. Is it fair, Jonathan? Mm-hmm. To, for Republicans to paint Democrats in this midterm as soft on crime, or is this sort of a nationwide problem that you can't pin on Democrats? Uh, is it fair or is it effective? Okay, uh, okay I, that's I guess fair. Our, Those are both good Are answers. two different questions. I mean, yeah. in politics, there's a lot that's done that's not necessarily fair uh, and that is suspect, but that it's done because it has the possibility of offering a, a payoff at the, uh, at the polls, and that's why they're doing it, because they are finding every Democrat who, in the last couple of years, said anything remotely sympathetic about defunding the police, and if the candidate did that uh, in the last couple of years, then they're going to haul out that video that tweet, that quote, and they're gonna they're, they're they're gonna bang them over the head with it. Why? Well, because crime is up in a lot of American cities, and it's on the minds of a lot of voters, and so they're speaking directly to that fact. And I think you saw this really come into play at the start of the fall when gas prices went down over the summer, and the GOP needed a better issue, needed an issue that was going to pop. And obviously, crime they believe could do that. And they believe that because they've got, like I said, these quotes and these clips from the last couple of years on Democrats saying that police should be defunded, or at least it should be looked at, that kind of thing. Take a step back from the the literal attack on the officers, which that ambush is just so disgusting and so horrible to think about. These are people who, they're somebody's children. Um, Take it to the now, now and fathers. Take it to the figurative now and the attacks that are being done against law enforcement more broadly. The attacks recently about the FBI, the attacks about law enforcement in general. I mean, we can't look at it in a vacuum that there is rhetoric out there. Again, not, I'm not saying it led to this, but there is rhetoric more broadly out there that has people having a very anti-police sentiment. Yeah. Right. And you put that in the same context as the crime discussions politically, and what is the recipe making? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a toxic brew, I think. You know, you bring up a good point. Obviously, sympathies to those families of those officers who were lost, that bravery of that officer who was able to neutralize the suspect. Um, it's a dangerous job. They know that when they sign up, um, and that is never called for. Um, but you're bringing up a point like the delegitimization of law enforcement, whether it be federal, state or local, uh, has has been an issue. Uh, you combine that with, you know, I often say if you're an African-American in this country, you had three pandemics over the last two years. You had the health pandemic. You had the economic fallout. Forty percent of businesses disappeared at one point during black businesses during covid. And then you had the 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 racial justice moment of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd, all that happening at the same time where you felt unmoored. Um, and I think it's created a sense of uncertainty um, and 
uh, again, a question from that side of, are the people who are here to protect me here to protect me? And then you add in the rhetoric, like you mentioned, about the FBI not being on. And I think you get this mix where people are like, I don't respect authority, and, and that's a problem. Um, Rena, one of the interesting things, and Jay Mark touched on it, is that it's effective, okay? So it's effective for Republicans to paint Democrats as soft on crime. But when you look at the numbers in terms of the amount of Democrats in Congress who ever thought that it was good to defund the police, it is a fraction. It is a tiny fraction. I think that there are something like nine Democrats who just voted against the Invest to Protect Act, which gave like $2 billion in funding for police and more hiring and training at the local and state level. So it's a very small... Um, percentage, but they're painting, they're using broad brush strokes to paint all sorts of Democrats that way. Yeah, you know those images of lawlessness Mm -hmm. that were from the summer of the Black Lives Matter movement that turned into riots in some places. And those riots were because there were bad actors. There are bad actors everywhere. I think, let's back up for a second. I think the conversation on policing in the past four years in this country, the national conversation has been hugely irresponsible from both sides. And I think one person who actually offers a glimmer of hope is Congresswoman Val Demings. And I say that as a lifelong Republican, somebody who's a Democrat has been able to come out here and push back and be like, look, I'm I'm a former member of law enforcement, and this is just not the way to talk about this stuff. I have not seen more Democrats take that page out of her playbook. I hope they do. But I, I would say this, is that in this moment of, of just policing, feeling like it's st- still such a heavy issue, how do we talk about it? Where are the solutions? We can maybe look to the states. I think in next door Virginia, Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, has a really unique opportunity here. He's next to what is c- considered a, a very woke, Democrat-led city, Washington, D.C., It could be a lab experiment of sorts. Let's see how he handles crime. Let's see how he's tough on it. There's a lot of gang violence and whatnot emerging in the northern Virginia suburbs, affluent suburbs. And the governor could have a real opportunity to do something here and show to the world that Republicans could be tough on crime in a way that could be bipartisan. A lot of people are watching Virginia and, of course, Glenn Youngkin in particular. I'm sure people like DeSantis and maybe even Trump for the RNC nomination. Listen, the Biden family... Well, they know firsthand about pain and loss due to cancer, which took the life of Bo Biden. Tonight, the first lady giving an interview to Newsmax, a conservative cable channel, about the cancer moonshot initiative. We'll see what she's saying about that next. Plus, we're hearing some of what you are saying out there. Cancer affects just about every American family. And tonight, First Lady Jill Biden talked publicly about the Biden administration's Cancer Moonshot Initiative, a program aiming to cut the death rate from cancer in half. She sat down for an interview with Newsmax, a conservative cable channel. So good for her. Good for her for doing that, for getting the word out on any platform that she possibly can. Obviously, conservatives need to hear about early screening, just like liberals need to hear about early screening. Mm -hmm. Let's hear how she framed it when she went on Newsmax tonight. Cancer is one of these issues. You know, it's not, um, you know, a red issue, a blue issue. Cancer affects every American. Cancer is such a terrible disease, but it is unifying people. They're all coming together to say, yes, let's work with one another and let's reduce the incidence Mm -hmm. of cancer as Mm -hmm. we know it and change the face of cancer. So it just, like you said, it affects every American family. 
You know, the idea of kind of getting out of the media silos, so to speak, I mean, the expectation is that the president will go on certain networks, have conversations. This is one such instance that really blows it out of the water for good reason. The fact that it affects many families. You know, Secretary Pete Buttigieg has gone to on Fox News on a number of occasions talking about issues, hoping to break through through that silo. In fact, he was on Fox News recently talking about, I think it was um, the idea of even petroleum and other issues. Let's play a little bit what we had to say. There's a debate as to whether the president will resume taking money out of the strategic or oil out of the strategic petroleum reserve. But you find it odd that we're even in that situation. You know, well, I definitely think we'll be in a better situation when we're not dependent on a commodity that is largely being produced in foreign dictatorships. Well, the state of play looks good. Uh, the Senate is working through this amendment process. There's still a lot of procedure to be gotten through, but uh, we are within days, possibly within hours, of seeing this historic legislation that's going to get us better roads and bridges. I mean, it shouldn't necessarily be newsworthy that you've got cabinet members going on a variety of networks. And yet in the climate we're in, to have it not be acrimonious and yeah. about what people care about, not just the political talking points, is impactful. I also think that the issue for Democrats who choose to go on places like Newsmax or Fox, it's like, yes, he gets a fair hearing with Neil Cavuto and Brett Baer there, but he also, Democrats know that then in the next block, you know, a few minutes later in the mm. next show, he'll be sliced and, sliced and diced and made fun of. And so are you legitimizing these networks when you actually go on and try to get the message out, or is it worth it? I mean, it's a catch-22, though, right? The idea of don't go on at all because people are going to believe that there's an opportunity to criticize you the next block. At the same token, don't go on and feed into the narrative that says they won't go on with us. They only go on with certain networks. I mean, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And you know who suffers? The people who are watching, consuming, hoping to have the information. Although I hear you on the idea of... Eh, what's going to happen next. But good for her. I mean, absolutely good for her. There's no downside to getting that message Mm -hmm. out. Um, Okay. meanwhile, President Biden pushing back against critics of his plan to cancel some student loan debt as the application process officially opens. Is the program a good idea? Is it going to cost all taxpayers more money? We're going to talk about that next. Well, it's official. The application process is now up and running for President Biden's plan to cancel the $20,000 of student debt for borrowers making less than $125,000 a year. President Biden touting the release today and hitting back at his critics. Republican members of Congress, Republican governors are trying to do everything they can to deny this relief, even to their own constituents. As soon as I announced my administration's student debt plan, They started attacking it, saying all kinds of things. Their outrage is wrong and it's hypocritical. I will never apologize for helping working Americans and middle class people as they recover from the pandemic, especially not the same Republicans who voted for a $2 trillion tax cut in the last administration, mainly benefiting the wealthiest Americans and the largest corporations. The administration says that more than 8 million Americans have already signed up since the beta version of the application went live just on Friday. Back with us, Rena Shah, Will Jawando, and Jonathan Martin, otherwise known as J-Mart with the cool nickname. There you go. Hashtag at J-Mart. You're Elko, as we know, coming up. Thank you, Elko. I I like that. But you know what's happening right now? This application, 
First of all, we all know, we can remember back to the Affordable Care Act, how important it is for a website to function. Absolutely. And when it doesn't function, all of your legislative gains can go away. It's working. What do you think? Eight million people apply. There's 40 million Americans with student loan debt, over $1.7 trillion, fastest growing, Mm -hmm. only second to uh, credit card debt. And it's a big deal. I mean, as, as Joe Biden would say. Uh, it he'd was, add a word. You know, he'd, add, he'd add a deal. He'd add a word to <laughs> it. Uh, probably a deal, too. Um, look, he's right. The, the tax cuts uh, for wealthy Americans, the PPP loans that members of Congress and other prominent Republicans, very wealthy people, had forgiven. This is people who I worked on the Senate Education Committee. We know that many people were targeted with uh, these predatory loans. They didn't get a good education for it. Some went to school, got a good education. Uh, and I think this is a core of what American is. We were the innovators of K-12 public education, not just for white male landowners. We stopped. And then other countries, Germany, other countries, start giving uh, post-secondary education for free because they know it creates jobs, wealth, brings people out of poverty. And now we want to make people feel bad and not help them when they've struggled through the pandemic. I think this is a winning issue. I think it's the right thing, and I think people are going to sign up for it. Yeah, it's not universal, is it? I mean, the idea you already have, I mean, 22 Republican governors signed a letter last, mm-hmm. just last month opposing it. You've got lawsuits happening right now claiming that Biden didn't have the authority to do so. And they also think it's going to in- increase inflation. There's that. And everything. So, Rena, as a Republican, how do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, you know, anytime I think you want to help people do better, that means not cripple them with certain costs and burdens. That's a good thing. Look, I came out of college in the early 2000s. <laughs> and so I'll tell you, this has been an issue for my generation. Like, this, we're living with it. It hurts. But there are people on my side of the aisle who think this is unfair. And I don't fully disagree because, you know, this is helpful, but helpful enough. It feels like it was a little bit of candy. It was a promise that Biden made good on. And any time a politician fulfills a promise, I think that's a good thing. But this is treating a symptom again. What about tackling the real problem? And that is tackling the cost at the root. This is just, again, um, a problem that the schools have put on us. And I, I do think that's what's been missing from the conversation. So nice website, 8 million people, all good and great. But, you know, I have friends, for example, who right before the pandemic moved their loans to privately held. And those people have no chance of forgiveness now. Mm. And, and I think there's some things we can do here. And one of those things is, you know, capping here. Let's cap the interest rate at 1%, for example, for federal, uh, federal loans. Let's cap it at 2% for privately held. Like, why aren't we talking about some more remedies here? It feels like, okay, Biden did this, it's done. And Republicans yeah. are mad about it. But isn't it, I mean, what you propose, mm-hmm. is that politically feasible? Um, look, I think uh, Joe Biden was reluctant about doing this. He dragged his feet on it for some time. He was very public, including on this network at a town hall uh, in 2021 when he was asked about it. He, he didn't want to, as he put it, give, give a break to folks who went to Harvard and Yale. He eventually did do this. And I think he, he did this along with the marijuana issue uh, in part, not entirely, but in part because it's good politics going into a midterm election. Democrats always have a difficult time getting sporadic voters out in midterms, especially young Younger voters. These are two potentially potent issues for younger voters. That's why Biden's holding that event today at the White House. That's why he's reading that line about the Republicans uh, and their hypocrisy on this. He's trying to get his side galvanized three weeks before the election. And this could be a powerful issue. To do. The flip side, though, yeah. is... Is there more support and energy for it? Are Democrats getting a reward for it more than they're suffering backlash against it among voters who say, to your point, you know, I paid off $50,000 in student loans over 20 years. It wasn't easy, but now you're getting a free lunch. 
I'm not sure which of those two sides. Furthermore, but what about yeah. what Rubina said, which is the root of the problem, which is tuition has gone up exponentially more than wages and then value, actually, of an undergrad education. Couldn't agree more. Bipartisan moment. It, the, the, if you look at the chart, it's like that, uh, the cost of education. Uh, that is a problem. We do have to tackle the root. But let's do both things at the same time. It doesn't help you to fix the root of the problem when you're sitting here saddled with debt and you can't get a job, you're struggling with health care. I think we need to reduce that burden and fix that problem. And, and that's a legislative fix. Uh, there needs to be the higher education is changing. Um, it's more online now for many people. That drives some costs down. So it's going through. I think it's the next housing bubble. There's no way it can, can continue yeah. to grow at the same rate and with the return not being worth the investment. But part of it requires a real paradigm shift, doesn't it, about how we value higher education? Absolutely. There is such snobbery as it's associated with the degree that you have. I mean, I'm a believer that the, the paper is only as good as the person who carries it. Um, but the idea in thinking about how we have a real snobbery surrounding higher education, we don't, believe, we don't yeah. have the American dream as often tied to every other attainment as we do for what school you go to. And so I just wonder, as we're talking about these conversations and what needs to happen, is it realistic that that mentality can also change in the span of a presidential tenure, let alone congressional term? Well, Biden, I think, had similar concerns about being seen as giving a break to people who were already privileged. They already had college degrees, but I think he obviously got over uh, uh, that concern. But yes, this gets to the heart of how the Democratic Party is perceived. And this is why it's a very delicate issue. They don't want to come off as being seen as, look, we're we're trying to give folks a break who went to college uh, because the people who didn't go to college who already feel in some cases like they're being looked down upon, they're saying, well, you know, where's my break too? And this is always an issue that Democrats are very sensitive about. And to come back full circle here, it's why we saw President Obama earlier in that clip telling Democrats how to speak very carefully about some of these issues. Well, good, good. This is one of those areas, I just I ask you, this kind of rings kind of, uh, is a little bit flat to me because it seems like it's one of the only areas we talk about. I mean, I don't hear the same arguments being made about people who have their roads paved, right. how our taxes are mm-hmm. done. I mean, there are people who will say things like, well, why do I have to pay for the cost of public school? I don't have any kids. Right. Oh, my kids don't go there. My kids are in public school. But, you know, they don't think all these things. Right. And I just wonder, I mean, why is this so, so much a, a bit of a gravy train of talking mm-hmm. points? Why is it a flashpoint? Because it feels like another handout by the government. And that's what it's always been on the right. It's like, we don't want handouts from Big Brother. We're going to do this ourselves. We're going to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. Which is hardly ever always true. Exactly. (laughs) It's not always true. But don't take my Medicare. Here's the thing. I'm a big believer in that not everybody has to go to college. I really feel that way. I I didn't enjoy my collegiate experience. I thought it was a really uh, lost four years for me, frankly. I feel like I learned more after I left. And that's not a slight at my school. That's not a slight at my, who raised me. It's just decided the fact that I don't think college is really that valuable, to be very frank. But we don't talk about what's the alternative, vocational mm-hmm. training, technical training. We talk on the right all the time about making America great and competing yeah. with everybody and in the we've world. we've lost some of those. We've I mean, lost we so used to have of okay, more vocational training. Well, you know who's doing that? It's Tim Ryan in Ohio quite a bit, indeed. who who was not a huge supporter, by the way, of President Biden's loan forgiveness thing, because he's trying to focus more on issues like community college, vote training, mm-hmm. and trying to sort of make Democrats relevant and again, with, with a lot of working class voters. I, I, I just got to say briefly, though, yes, community college, yes, vocational training. Community college, less than 5000 a year for, for most students, so that's a really important option. Um, 
But this idea that, that we don't like handouts, I mean, we've even handouts these tax breaks, the PPP loans, uh, the trickle-down economics. selective, you're saying. Yeah. You know, it's very selective. <laughs> no, we like, do let's, like let's, handouts, let's, it's let's not give for money other people. to the job creators. Yeah. And, you know, if you can't, but Will, you can't we, have it both should ways. We pay for, should the taxpayers pay for community college for everybody? It, why uh, is, as a policy what? thing? Let's have that debate. I think yeah, yes. What? I think the, the returns are far greater. You know, we have a thing now where we've shrunk the amount of patent holders to only the top 2%. There used to be a time in American history where patent holders were equally divided around the wealth distribution. We have squeezed the innovation out of people because we can't give them health care, child care. They can't afford to go to college. I think if you open those things up, you're going to have more innovation, more economic growth. It's a debate we should have, but I think this is a good, uh, I saw it on Twitter described as a, a Drake Beyonce like album drop. He just did it. And like, you know, you know and he's just like, I'm going to do it. So get over it. We're ending in there. That's a mic drop moment. There we go. We're going to have all of you sound off right now and your tweets on the Drake Beyonce moment that we'll just... Okay. Yeah. Okay. Go right your tweets are all next, everyone. Okay, time to get your thoughts on tonight's topics. Your tweets are rolling in. Here's one. As an American Jew whose grandparents were from Hungary, survived the Holocaust, and then in 1956 had to escape when the Russians invaded, it sickens me what is going on in our country and that anti-Semitism still exists. Everyone should go to the Holocaust Museum, meaning not just yay. Oh, it's a beautiful museum, too. And just it, you are enveloped in the history of it, I'm telling you. Especially, I haven't gone to the ones in L.A., mm-hmm. but in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Another one comes in. It says, as a black Gen Xer who sat in the same Columbia classroom as President Obama, his comment sounded like a request for a political correctness ceasefire from a generational cohort at the polls this November. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, some I think it was that. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, okay, President Obama is saying the right things. Withdrawn Democrats... Trump-weary Republicans and independents should be listening to him. Well, those probably are the people who are listening to him, actually. (laughs) I mean, well, he knew that when he spoke, it would be broadcast so many places. Some places picked apart. Other places, I mean, obviously praise. Other things condemned. We'll see. Keep those coming. You know where to find us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. Everyone, you can always be a part of the conversation and join in. We want to hear from you, so thank you. Hashtag CNN Sound Off. Thanks so much for watching us tonight. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.